Hello, and welcome to another episode of AMinder. My name is Ellen Rowe, and today I'll be taking you through the latest on vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease. This episode covers papers that showed up on PubMed in February 2021, and topics today range from understanding midlife vascular risk factors for Alzheimer's, to untangling cerebrovascular pathology from the hallmark AD pathology, all the way to candidate Alzheimer's treatments that target blood vessels. Lots to unpack here, so stay tuned for a perspective on Alzheimer's disease outside of the classic amyloid cascade hypothesis. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Okay, so I always like to start off with my classic background spiel for listeners who are new here. Of course, feel free to skip the next couple of minutes if you're a seasoned veteran in this field or have already heard me ramble on about how important it is to think about blood vessels in the context of Alzheimer's disease. So the cerebrovasculature plays many critical roles in keeping the brain healthy and functional. It's the highway of nutrient and oxygen delivery to the brain, a main route of waste disposal, including amyloid clearance, and its highly selective blood-brain barrier is critical to its function. When these functions are compromised, like when there's reduced blood flow to the brain, or when the blood-brain barrier starts to leak, this can lead to brain damage, which may include initiating events in the AD pathology. As a field, we're starting to appreciate that vascular dysfunction is an early event in the AD pathology, and the lines between vascular dementia and AD are blurring given all of the cases of mixed pathology, and that cerebrovascular risk factors considerably overlap with risk factors for AD. As we tune into the importance of the vasculature in maintaining brain health, we're learning a lot about how things might go wrong through the course of developing AD, and how maintaining vascular health and function could be a new way of preventing or treating AD. So hopefully this has piqued your interest, as this is a bit of a long episode, covering a whopping 24 papers in this blossoming field. A few notes before I dive in. First, I'd like to remind everyone that Aminder includes all papers from peer-reviewed journals for any given month, meaning that we don't exclude any based on our own perceived quality of the science or accuracy of the interpretations. We also mostly draw from the abstracts for the content of our episodes, so be sure to check out the full papers for more details and to make your own judgments on the quality of the science before you accept anything as fact. We provide free numbered bibliographies with our episodes, so you can note down the numbers of the paper that pique your interest here and track down the full manuscripts using our bibliography. Also, I'll mention a few common abbreviations that I might use. I've already used one, which is AD, that's Alzheimer's disease. BBB is blood-brain barrier, and CAA is cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So with that covered, let's dive in. I figured the most logical place to start this episode would be to focus on midlife vascular risk factors. These are really just as they're named. They're factors in midlife that can influence someone's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease later on. The most common culprits, as you'll hear me unpack, are high blood pressure, or hypertension, and blood cholesterol levels, which can influence the development of atherosclerosis or arteriosclerosis. So to launch into the papers unpacking the contribution of vascular risk factors to AD, first up we have subclinical atherosclerosis and brain metabolism in middle-aged individuals, the PISA study. This is by first author Cortez Cantelli and last author, Fuster, and this research was done by a collaboration across several institutions in Spain. 
It was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. So in this study, the authors investigated whether midlife cardiovascular risk factors, including subclinical atherosclerosis, were associated with brain metabolism in midlife, since this could be a mechanism behind the shared risk of cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So their study included 547 middle-aged participants from the progression of early subclinical atherosclerosis, or PISA, study, who all had FDG-PET done to measure brain metabolism. Participants also had their atherosclerotic plaque burden measured with a 3D vascular ultrasound. Interestingly, but not really surprisingly, the authors found a highly significant inverse correlation between brain metabolism and the accepted 30-year Framingham Risk Score, which is a measure of cardiovascular risk. They found this association was mainly driven by hypertension, or high blood pressure. Further analysis showed that increased plaque burden in the carotid artery, which is the artery feeding the brain, decreased brain metabolism as measured by FDG-PET. The authors also explored regional differences, with a lot to unpack, so be sure to check out their full paper. Ultimately, though, this provides more insight into the contribution of midlife vascular risk factors, especially hypertension, to the development of dementias, including Alzheimer's disease. So moving in now to a study in rats for our second paper of the episode, which is titled Cerebrovascular Damage After Midlife Transient Hypertension in Non-Transgenic and Alzheimer's Disease Rats. This is by first author Lay and last author McLaurin, and they're from the Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto, Canada. This paper was published in Brain Research. So here the authors hypothesize that the history of any previous hypertension causes irreversible damage that may tie into the development of AD, which aligns well with the findings from the last paper. So to investigate this, they used the transgenic F344-TG-AD mouse model that they treated with L-name, which is a potent vasoconstrictor, for a month, then allowed for a month of recovery, and this was a model of transient hypertension. They found that either the transient hypertension or the AD pathology in the transgenic mice decreased structural and functional integrity of the vasculature, and that these two factors, the hypertension or the AD pathology, seemed to have an additive effect with each other. They also found increased cerebral amyloid angiopathy and cortical myelin loss in transgenic mice with the hypertensive regimen, and a downregulation of cerebrovascular remodeling proteins. With this data, the authors concluded that the transient hypertension caused permanent vascular and parenchymal damage in normal aging and with the AD pathology in mice. This agrees with lots of human studies indicating that midlife hypertension can lead to white matter lesions and vascular pathologies later in life. So more on hypertension and AD, but from a different angle now, we have our third paper titled Genetically Determined Blood Pressure, Antihypertensive Medications, and Risk of Alzheimer's Disease, a Mendelian Randomization Study. This is by first author Wu and last author Yu, and this research was from a collaboration across several institutions in China, and this paper was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. So in this study, the authors wanted to take another perspective on deciphering the relationship between antihypertensive medications to reduce blood pressure and the reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. Instead of the common observational studies, these authors looked at genes encoding protein targets of antihypertensive medications using Mendelian randomization to evaluate causation. They found that genetic proxies for the overall use of antihypertensive medications and calcium channel blockers specifically were significantly associated with a lower risk of AD. In their further analysis, they didn't find that any of these associations were driven by any particular single nucleotide polymorphism. 
Ultimately, these authors found genetic support for the entanglement of blood pressure and AD and proposed that antihypertensive medications should continue to be explored in the prevention of AD. So now moving into the effects of vascular risk factors on functional connectivity in the brain. The fourth paper of this episode is titled, Vascular Risk Factors Are Associated with a Decline in Resting State Functional Connectivity in Cognitively Unimpaired Individuals at Risk for Alzheimer's Disease, Vascular Risk Factors and Functional Connectivity Changes. This is by first author Kobe and last author Villeneuve, and they're from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and this paper was published in NeuroImage. So these authors investigated connectivity in the context of AD, but with a longitudinal sample to see how it changes over the course of the disease. To do this, they leveraged 247 cognitively unimpaired individuals who had a family history of sporadic AD, who had follow-ups over about three and a half years. They also included standard measures of total plasma cholesterol, HDL and LDL cholesterol, and blood pressure for all participants. Surprisingly, they found that global functional connectivity increased with time in the whole sample. They also found that a higher total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and diastolic blood pressure were related with decreased connectivity measures. In a subset of 91 of their participants who had amyloid and tau PET scans done, the authors found no association with A-beta or tau deposition with changes in functional connectivity over time. Overall, they concluded that vascular burden is associated with a decrease in connectivity over time, and future work is needed to investigate whether this precedes the impact of the AD pathology. So the next paper looked at blood pressure in relation to cerebral small vessel disease, which is commonly seen alongside the AD pathology. So this is the fifth paper of the episode, and it's called Impact of the Ambulatory Blood Pressure Monitoring Profile on Cognitive and Imaging Findings of Cerebral Small Vessel Disease in Older Adults with Cognitive Complaints. This is by first author Shim and the last author Shin, who are from the Catholic University of Korea, and this paper was published in the Journal of Human Hypertension. So ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is when blood pressure readings are taken over a 24-hour period, something I didn't know until I came across this paper. So here the authors looked at ambulatory blood pressure profiles and MRI measures of cerebral small vessel disease in 174 subjects who either had subjective cognitive decline, mild cognitive impairment, or Alzheimer's disease dementia. They found that no MRI or blood pressure profile findings were different between the cognitive groups, but that 24-hour blood pressure measures were negatively correlated with MMSE scores and positively correlated with white matter hyperintensities. They also found that a higher systolic blood pressure during the day increased the odds of dementia and the MRI finding of subcortical vascular dementia. With that, the authors concluded that higher blood pressure, especially systolic blood pressure, may be the most important for reflecting cerebral small vessel disease. And that bridges us nicely into the next section of this episode, which focuses on associations of cerebrovascular pathology with the hallmark AD pathology and clinical progression. Since, as I mentioned, there's a lot of overlap between cerebrovascular pathology and Alzheimer's disease. So for our first paper here and sixth of the episode, we have the contribution of cerebral vascular neuropathology to mild stage of Alzheimer's dementia using the NACC database. This is by first author Liu and last author Brady from the University of New South Wales in Australia, and this was published in Current Alzheimer's Research. So this group wanted to gain some more insight into how cerebral small vessel disease might interact with the Alzheimer's disease pathology. 
To do this, they leveraged participants from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center, or NACC, to do a cross-sectional study with cognitively normal, mild cognitive impairment due to AD, and AD dementia patients over the age of 60. So working through the NACC gave the authors access to longitudinal data and autopsy data for all included participants. They found that many markers of cerebrovascular health, including arteriosclerosis severity, global infarcts, old microinfarcts or microbleeds, and the number of microinfarcts were significantly associated with mild AD, even after correcting for amyloid and tau load. This indicates that the effects are not mediated by increased AD pathology. They also found a significant relationship between atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, and AD progression, with those having vascular pathology progressing faster. The authors explored several other associations in the full paper, so be sure to check that out, but overall they suggest that cerebrovascular disease likely has an additive effect with the AD pathology in the development and progression of clinically diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. So now more on the interactions between the AD pathology and cerebrovascular pathology. We have vascular lesions, APOE epsilon 4, and tau pathology in Alzheimer's disease. This is by first author Nichols and last author Beach, and this study was a collaboration across several institutions in Arizona, USA. And the paper was published in the Journal of Neuropathology and Experimental Neurology. So here the authors measured a panel of markers of cerebrovascular damage, which included cerebral amyloid angiopathy, white matter rarefaction, also known as leukoriasis, arteriosclerosis in the circle of Willis, which is a structure that supplies most of the brain with blood, and total microinfarct numbers. Their goal was to see if there was an association between these measures and the tau pathology in the brain reflected by the BRAC staging number. To do this, they measured all of the mentioned pathologies in post-mortem brains of 355 cases across the AD spectrum. They found that CAA and white matter rarefactions were significantly associated with BRAC stage, independent of the amyloid load in the brain. With further analysis, they also found that APOE4 carrier status strengthened the relationship between white matter rarefactions and the BRAC stage. So certainly interesting insights from this autopsy study. Be sure to check it out for a more deep dive into the implications of these findings. So now more on the interaction of the pathologies. We have our eighth paper, which is called Amyloid Beta and Tau Tango Pathology Modifies the Association Between Small Vessel Disease and Cortical Microinfarcts. This is by first author Capassi and last author Schneider from the Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, USA, and it was published in the journal Stroke. I'm sure it's not a surprise that cerebral small vessel pathologies are associated with microinfarcts in the brain, and we know that these are both frequently seen alongside the AD pathology. However, how one may influence the other is still not very clear. So here the authors wanted to look at the relationship of cerebral small vessel diseases with cortical microinfarcts across the AD pathological spectrum. Their study included 1,500 autopsied individuals who had amyloid, tau, and cerebrovascular pathologies assessed. They found that the association of both cerebral amyloid angiopathy and arteriosclerosis with microinfarcts was significantly stronger in the presence of greater amyloid or tau burden. This indicates that the AD pathology may interact with cerebrovascular pathology to increase tissue injury. So now, on to how cerebral small vessel disease may impact connectivity. This is the ninth paper of the episode, titled The Influence of Cerebral Small Vessel Disease on Static and Dynamic Functional Network Connectivity in Subjects Along the Alzheimer's Disease Continuum. 
This is by first author Lee and last author Vince from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and this is published in Brain Connectivity. So as I'm sure you could guess from the title, these authors looked at how cerebral small vessel disease can influence brain connectivity in people across the AD spectrum. For those of you keen on connectivity measures, these authors used both static and dynamic functional network connectivity measures. Their sample was a total of nearly 550 participants with varying cognitive diagnoses and the presence or absence of cerebral small vessel disease. They found that static functional network connectivity along the AD continuum showed increasing within-domain connectivity and decreased between-domain connectivity, and this was more pronounced in patients with cerebral small vessel disease. They also saw changes in dynamic measurements with a more modular rather than diffuse connectivity. Upon further analysis, they found that cerebral small vessel disease altered connectivity in a different way than the AD pathology. They concluded that those with cerebral small vessel disease had more impairments associated with cognitive decline, which may shed more light on the interaction of vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So we'll be moving into a focus on white matter hyperintensities specifically for the next few papers. If you're new here, these are features seen in brain imaging that are thought to reflect cerebrovascular damage and are often used as a proxy for cerebrovascular damage. So with that, the 10th paper of the episode is titled Influence of Regional White Matter Hyperintensity Volume and Apolipoprotein E Epsilon 4 Status on Hippocampal Volume in Healthy Older Adults. This is by first author Van Etten and last author Alexander from the University of Arizona, and it was published in the journal Hippocampus. So exactly like the title lays out, these authors investigated how regional white matter hyperintensity volume and ApoE4 carrier status affect hippocampal volume. Their study sample included 190 cognitively normal adults who all had imaging and APOE genotyping done. They found that white matter hyperintensities in the temporal lobe significantly mediated the relationship between age and hippocampal volume, and that this effect was moderated by APOE4 carrier status. That is, APOE4 carriers had decreased hippocampal volume as they got older, which was mediated by white matter hyperintensity volume in the temporal lobe, but this was not the case with non-carriers. No other regions with white matter hyperintensities showed any significant relationships. If you're interested in learning more about APOE, check out Courtney's episode on understanding APOE. So as promised, more on white matter hyperintensities now with the 11th paper called Association of White Matter Hyperintensity Progression with Cognitive Decline in Patients with Amnesic Mild Cognitive Impairment. This is by first author Hiro and last author Shimizu, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and these authors are from Tokyo Medical University. In this study, the authors investigated the relationship of white matter hyperintensity progression, so worsening of the features, with the conversion from mild cognitive impairment to AD dementia. To do this, they enrolled 38 participants with amnesic MCI and followed them over two years with MRI scans and cognitive assessments. They found that increased deep white matter hyperintensity volume had a significant correlation with MMSE scores, but periventricular hyperintensities weren't correlated with any outcome. With these results, the authors concluded that deep white matter hyperintensity progression may contribute to worsening cognitive symptoms in patients. Next up, we have clinical and biological correlates of white matter hyperintensities in patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. This is the 12th paper of the episode by first author Huynh and last author Landon Romero from the University of Sydney in Australia, and this paper was published in Neurology. 
So in this paper, the authors explored whether white matter hyperintensities were associated with disease severity, cortical atrophy, and cognition in patients with AD or frontotemporal dementia. Their study included 65 patients with AD, 64 with frontotemporal dementia, and 66 controls who all had imaging and neuropsychological assessments done. They found that total white matter hyperintensity volumes were largest in frontotemporal dementia, and that regional hyperintensity patterns mirrored patterns of cortical atrophy that are typical of the two diseases. Interestingly, they found that hyperintensity volumes were associated with disease severity, but not with vascular risk factors as defined by lifetime hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, and smoking. These results suggest that white matter hyperintensities may be partly independent from vascular pathology, but are associated with the neurodegenerative disease process. So with that, we'll take a quick break as we're exactly halfway through the episode now. I'll see you back here soon for new tools to streamline the quantification of vascular pathology, some mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease in the vasculature, and some treatments targeting the vasculature. So stay tuned. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, welcome back. So now we'll be diving into a few papers on streamlining quantification of vascular pathology. This is kind of both in humans and in rodents. So first up, we have an anatomical knowledge-based MRI deep learning pipeline for white matter hyperintensity quantification associated with cognitive impairment. This is the 13th paper of the episode by first author Liang and last author Ma. And this research was done by several institutions across China. The paper was published in Computerized Medical Imaging and Graphics. So as the title nicely lays out, these authors developed a new tool for quantifying white matter hyperintensities. If you're not familiar with how white matter hyperintensities are currently quantified, the gold standard is a trained rater, which is usually a clinician, identifying the intensities in the images, which is prone to error and very time-consuming, as I'm sure you could imagine. So to improve this, the authors generated an automated algorithm, Some of the novelty of this tool comes from the fact that the algorithm incorporates brain atlas data to map the hyperintensities to specific brain regions. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the deep learning pipeline here, you'll have to check out the full paper for that, but based on their evaluation of the tool with a publicly available database, it seems like a reliable method to segment and quantify brain white matter hyperintensities in elderly cohorts. So next up is the 14th paper, which is pretty similar, entitled Automated Detection of Cerebral Microbleeds on T2-Weighted MRI. This is by first author Chesbro and last author Brickman from Columbia University in New York, and this one was published in Scientific Reports. So here we have a new method that's likely to be super useful if you're looking to quantify cerebral microbleeds in MRI or gradient echo images. Currently, microbleeds are scored similarly to white matter hyperintensities, that is, with a trained rater. So hoping to improve the reliability of this quantification and to speed it up, these authors developed an algorithm to automatically identify bleeds in images and map them to their location in the brain based on a human brain atlas. They validated their tool using a community-based cohort and found that it outperformed visual ratings by humans in terms of speed and sensitivity. Be sure to check this out, as it will certainly speed up your analysis if you're working with cerebral microbleed data. 
So now onto a few tools for most model studies. First is demonstration of age-related blood-brain barrier disruption and cerebral microvascular rarefaction in mice by two-photon microscopy and optical coherence tomography. This is the 15th paper if you're looking for it in our free bibliography. And it's by first author Neil To and last author Ungveri. And this was a big collaboration spanning several institutions with the main authors from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences. And this paper was published in the American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology. As a bit of a preface, lots of work this year has connected aging to decreased blood-brain barrier integrity. So that is, it gets leakier as we age. For more work to characterize how exactly this happens in mouse models, tools to quantify BBB integrity over a longitudinal study course are needed. So the authors saw this gap and optimized two methods for two-photon imaging in mice while they're still alive to image fluorescent tracer permeability. Using their optimized methods, they saw that at 24 months, C57 black 6 mice had increased blood-brain barrier permeability and decreased cortical capillary density than younger mice. This will certainly be a neat tool for future studies on BBB permeability, so be sure to check it out. Last new tool, also of relevance for those working with mouse models. For our 16th paper, we have mapping of microvascular architecture in the brain of an Alzheimer's disease mouse model using MRI. This is by first author Chang and last author Jang, and this research was done by several institutions across Korea. The paper was published in NMR in Biomedicine. So since most of us have tuned in to the importance of the microvasculature in the context of the Alzheimer's disease pathology, these authors characterized and compared the microvasculature in wild-type and transgenic 5X FAD mice. Using a series of MRI measures on 7 wild-type and 10 transgenic mice, they found that several measures were greater in the AD group. These were blood volume fraction, mean vessel diameter, vessel size index, and mean vessel weighted image. Based on these findings, the authors suggested that there was microvascular disruption in the AD mice, which may be caused by amyloid deposition. So now onto a mixed bag of papers, which are all generally related to mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease in the vasculature. First up, we have the 17th paper of the episode, titled Dispersion as a Waste Clearance Mechanism in Flow Through Penetrating Perivascular Spaces in the Brain. This is by first author Troyetsky and last author Kelly from the University of Rochester in New York, and this one was published in Scientific Reports. So my cerebrovascular changes episodes from previous months have largely focused on amyloid clearance from the brain, but this is actually the only paper from this month with that focus. So to date, lots of hypotheses have been presented about the mechanisms behind perivascular clearance, which is the wiggling of solutes like A-beta along the vasculature to eventually be cleared from the brain. Here, the authors wanted to better understand the mechanism behind perivascular clearance, and they took some pretty fluid dynamics heavy methods to get there. From my understanding, disclaimer, I am not a fluid dynamics expert, they did simulations to represent different types of flow of the cerebral spinal fluid in perivascular spaces, including steady flow and oscillatory flow, both of which have been suggested by other scientists. They found that a steady flow component of the CSF would be required to effectively clear waste at a higher rate than diffusion. Definitely check out this full paper if you have a background in fluid dynamics, as lots of this was a bit over my head, but it's super important in understanding how A-beta is cleared from the brain. Now, really switching gears here, the 18th paper today is called Upregulation of Cortical A2A Adenosine Receptors is Reflected in Platelets of Patients with Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author 
Mary Gee, and last author Gessie, and this was a collaboration across several institutions in Italy. The paper was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and here we have a bit of a stray for this episode, but my August episode on cerebrovascular changes covered a few papers on platelets in the context of AD, so check that one out for some more info. To catch everyone up to speed, platelets circulate in the bloodstream and actually have all of the proteins required to generate A-beta themselves. Lots of researchers suggest that platelets can mirror the AD pathology-related changes in the brain, which was the basis of this paper. The authors were interested in whether adenosine A2A receptor was expressed differently in the brains of those with AD, and whether these changes could also be reflected by peripheral platelets. Using post-mortem brain samples, these authors quantified A2A expression in several brain regions and in platelets from AD patients and controls. As the title suggests, they found significantly higher A2A receptor density in patients with AD compared to controls, and this change was also reflected in peripheral platelets. This indicates that much more could be going on in the periphery than we think, and more work is needed to fully understand platelet changes in Alzheimer's disease. A big pivot again for the 19th paper, titled Increasing Intracellular Levels of Iron with Ferric Ammonium Citrate Leads to Reduced P-Glycoprotein Expression in Human Immortalized Brain Microvascular Endothelial Cells. Bit of a mouthful there by first author Newman and last author Nicolazzo, who are from the Monash University in Australia. This paper was published in Pharmaceutical Research. So iron accumulation has been seen in many cases of AD, and it's actually now generally accepted that it's a common feature of the AD pathology. Most focus on unpacking its contribution to the pathology to date has focused on associations with A-beta accumulation or inflammation, but these authors wanted to see whether it might affect the function of brain microvascular endothelial cells. Specifically, they were interested in the transporter P-glycoprotein, which is a key player in A-beta clearance from the brain. So to probe into this, they used the immortalized human HCMECD3 cell line, and they quantified P-glycoprotein expression and function following treatment with a ferric ammonium citrate to model iron accumulation. They found that treatment significantly reduced P-glycoprotein expression by 36%, but did not affect the overall function of the transporter measured with the rhodamine 123 assay. Given these somewhat contradictory results, more work is needed to unpack the impact of iron on brain microvascular endothelial cells. Okay, now into a bit of a more structured last section of this episode, focused on AD treatments that target the vasculature. To start this one off, our 20th paper is called Extending the Calpain-Cathepsin Hypothesis to the Neurovasculature, Protection of Brain Endothelial Cells and Mice from Neurotrauma. This is by first author Knopp and last author Thatcher from the University of Illinois and the University of Arizona in the USA, and this one was published in ACS Pharmacology and Translational Science. So if you're like me and were not at all familiar with the Calpain-Cathepsin hypothesis, it proposes that increased Calpain-1 and Cathepsin-B activity are at the root of neurodegeneration in that they contribute to neuronal death. From my limited reading on the cascade, it seems like Calpain can increase the cleavage of heat shock protein 70, which then contributes to lysosome rupture, releasing Cathepsin, which then drives cell death. So here the authors wanted to extend this hypothesis past neurons and into the cerebral vasculature. They started in vitro and showed that primary brain endothelial cells from aldehyde dehydrogenase 2 knockout mice, which is an age-related model of cognitive impairment, had increased viability and tight junction expression when treated by calpain-1 or cathepsin-B inhibitors. 
They then moved in vivo with their mouse model and induced a traumatic brain injury to disrupt BBB integrity. Interestingly, they found that both inhibitors alleviated the BBB disruption post-traumatic brain injury. Overall, this work highlights the potential of these drugs to protect and reinforce brain microvascular endothelial cells, which may be an attractive AD prevention strategy. The next paper explored a commonly used AD drug's effect on the vasculature, and it's appropriately titled The Association Between the Use of Cholinesterase Inhibitors and Cardiovascular Events Among Older Patients with Alzheimer's Disease. This is the 21st paper of the episode by first author Xiao and last author Wu, and this was a collaboration across several institutions in Taiwan. This paper was published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and this study took a different angle to explore the entanglement of Alzheimer's disease with vascular pathology and looked at the effect of cholinesterase inhibitors on cardiovascular events. If you aren't familiar with cholinesterase inhibitors, they're the main treatment avenue for symptom management in early Alzheimer's disease, and they work by increasing the acetylcholine available at synapses. Here, the authors used a cohort of 6,070 patients with Alzheimer's disease and looked at whether their use of cholinesterase inhibitors influenced vascular outcomes. They found that those treated with cholinesterase inhibitors had significantly lower risk of adverse cardiovascular events. Interestingly, this relationship seemed to be dose-dependent, with higher cumulative doses of cholinesterase inhibitors associated with significantly lower risk. This is a very interesting off-target cardioprotective effect of these drugs. So on to the 22nd paper, coming full circle with the emphasis on hypertension earlier in the episode. We have the use of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors versus angiotensin receptor blockers and cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease, the importance of blood-brain barrier penetration, and APOE epsilon-4 carrier status. This is by first author Uck and last author Swordfeger from the University of Toronto and the Sunnybrook Research Institute in Canada. This paper was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. So angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are both common treatment approaches to mitigate hypertension. Both of them block the angiotensin-mediated vasoconstriction, causing blood vessels to dilate and ultimately reduce blood pressure. As we heard about earlier in this episode, lots of lines of evidence point to hypertension playing a role in the development of Alzheimer's disease, so these drugs are being investigated for their efficacy in the context of AD. Here, the authors investigated both types of drugs in their ability to mitigate cognitive decline in a cohort of 1,689 patients clinically diagnosed with AD. Specifically, they also looked at APOE4 carrier status and BBB penetrance of the drugs in patients as mediators of the efficacy. There are lots of associations to unpack in this paper, so I encourage you to refer to the whole manuscript to really comb through all the stats. But ultimately, from their analysis, the authors concluded that angiotensin receptor blocker use was most effective in APOE4 non-carriers in preserving memory and processing speed. They also found that the receptor blockers were more effective than the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors that didn't cross the BBB in mitigating cognitive outcomes. More on angiotensin receptor blockers, but this time in mice, we have the 23rd paper titled Systemic Candesartin Treatment Modulates Behavior, Synaptic Protein Levels, and Neuroinflammation in Female Mice that Express Human ApoE4. This one's by first author Scheinman and last author Tai from University of Illinois and University of Arizona in the USA, and this one was published in Frontiers in Neuroscience. 
So most rodent work to date looking at these angiotensin receptor blockers in the context of AD have used classic AD mouse models that do not express human ApoE, which these authors saw as a limitation and possible reason for the mixed results so far. So Kendisartan, the drug mentioned in the title, is an angiotensin receptor blocker, and these authors investigated its influence on a series of outcomes in a familial AD mouse model expressing human ApoE4. Their treatment regimen spanned four months, and at the end, they found that treatment with the drug improved memory and hippocampal presynaptic protein levels only in female ApoE4-expressing mice. They also saw that the treatment effects included lower GFAP and IPO1, potentially reflecting reduced astrogliosis and microglia activation, but there were actually no changes in markers of cerebrovascular function, which I found surprising. Overall, the study supports the further development of angiotensin receptor blockers in female ApoE4 carriers, but this study didn't include mice that expressed other isoforms of human ApoE, so more research is needed to really hammer out the details of this association. So capping this episode off with a really interesting new treatment avenue, we have the final 24th paper of the episode, titled ApoE Immunotherapy Reduces Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy and Amyloid Plaques While Improving Cerebrovascular Function. This is by first author Shong and last author Holtzman, and this was a collaboration with the main authors from Washington University. The paper was published in Science Translational Medicine, and in this paper, the authors took a new approach to curbing amyloid accumulation, targeting ApoE with immunofinity rather than A-beta itself. They used the antibody HAE4, which has an affinity to ApoE that's co-deposited with A-beta in the cerebrovasculature and parenchyma. To test out the antibody, they leveraged the 5X FAD mouse model that was homozygous for human ApoE4 and treated them with either the HAE4 antibody or an A-beta antibody. They found that the novel ApoE antibody was able to clear A-beta from the cerebral vessels of the mice, while the A-beta antibody wasn't. They also found that while the A-beta antibody produced microhemorrhages, the ApoE antibody did not and actually rescued cerebrovascular dysfunction and mitigated inflammation. These results show that targeting co-deposited ApoE may be a novel therapeutic avenue that can both clear all types of amyloid deposits and protect cerebrovascular integrity. So step aside, A-beta immunotherapies. And that's a wrap for this episode. Hopefully you learned as much as I did putting it together, and I hope to see you back next month for more links between the vasculature and Alzheimer's disease. A reminder that we offer free bibliographies with all of our episodes so that you can track down the full papers that I've summarized here. You can find a link to all of our bibliographies in the episode notes. Also, we're releasing episodes every day of the week, except Saturdays. So be sure to check those out for a range of other topics related to Alzheimer's disease. As always, huge thank you to the whole Aminder team for bringing this project to life, and especially to my sorting team, Jacques and Christy, for their help in parsing out focused episodes like this one, my reviewer Courtney for her valuable input in this episode, and for making sure I didn't make any major mistakes in writing it, our musician Anusha for writing the beautiful music you hear in each episode, and our managers Sarah and Ellen Koch, who keep Aminder a well-oiled machine. If you're interested in joining this wonderful team of ours, we are recruiting. Send us an email with your CV and let us know what you're interested in helping with. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching A Minder Podcast. And of course, thank you, our listener, for tuning in. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.